You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where we'll never make you take a stupid poll. I'm your host, Justin Emlesneski, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said or will say on this show. That's how we protect against being canceled. Although really, is canceling a thing or is it all in your mind? We previously discussed that with Kanye and when Kanye went crazy. And if you guys haven't seen, there was a great episode about Kanye in the new South Park season. So check that out if you haven't seen it. But we'll be discussing the canceling thing in a little bit when we touch on, just very briefly touch on the the Scott Adams controversy. But first, before we get into all the farce from this past week or what's currently going on, I have to bring in my co-host. Joining me, this trip from Dale's Lawn, identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege, William Green. Hello, hello. Yes, back from... uh, uh poker game in honor of my birthday last night which uh my uh guests graciously let me win by letting me rebuy in so uh so i could get a chance to win i think i think technically i won first place but uh it was fun thank you for everyone for coming we had a great time uh isn't there more going on in southern california though do aren't you supposed (laughs) to have dodgeball today or kickball sorry those are two different things kickball today and wasn't it canceled because it's snowing there (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. And well, it wasn't snowing exactly here where I am, but yeah, I think the snow got all the way down to like a thousand feet. So that's a that's a lot of that's that's a unusual for for uh, for winter here. Uh, we also had flood warning until today. Today it's sunshining, but uh, we had a we had enough rain to cause some problems. And um, thankfully, my power stayed on, and the river that normally forms in the street uh, formed and uh, took all the water away. So there was no flooding here, other than the normal normal uh, rivers. If everyone's driven in L.A. and wondered why these streets had like crazy divots in them, it's because they become rivers during rainstorms, uh, purposely to uh, to whisk the water away. So whisk it away to where you think they'd capture it because <laughs> no, of no, all no. the drought. just straight into the L.A. River and out to sea. That's what we do here. There's no L.A. River. That's a lie. That's made up. Well, the L.A. cement that becomes the L.A. River yeah. only when it rains. Yeah, if you've ever watched a uh, show or movie set in Los Angeles where they're, like, not on the streets, but they're running in what looks like a giant, like, I don't even know. How would you describe it? Would the word basin be proper, William? Yeah, it's kind of like a drainage thing. Yeah. Right, but it, you look you look at it and you're like, what is that? What is the purpose of that? That's the quote-unquote L.A. River. It's supposed to be a river, and it's supposed to be for water, but there's never ever any actually water in it. It's so usually it just homeless a, people. Right. Well, now it is. It used to be a pretty cool shooting location until the homeless people were like, wait, we can live here? But that's, I think that's going into uh, one of the major stories for this week, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, do you have anything else you want to update us on in your life before we no, get into it? No, I think thank the celebration, and uh, as I know some of you saw the little birthday video I made on YouTube, so check it out. Um, but yeah, it was fun. 
All right. Well, I'm glad you were able to uh, receive poker welfare in the sense that they let you win again. Sort of, I guess, a uh, Kansas City Chiefs call yeah. in your favor there. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to other more farcical things in Life on the Midside. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including and especially affirmations. I don't care how much money you donate. Just tell me I did a good job and I'll be happy because my parents never did. All right, to start with the farce this week, William, I want to talk about some stuff sort of in the, uh, the the Twitterverse. And I say that because these are things that wouldn't ever really be known about or wouldn't really ever be talked about. And I don't even know if they'd have any real influence in the world if it wasn't for sort of the social media world. And maybe we should just call it the metaverse, but there's more to social media than, than the Zuckerberg-owned company of Facebook and Instagram. But the first thing is, uh, there was an update. I believe it was you who shared it. Did you share this update on the uh, the Biden official yeah, stealing yeah. clothes? I saw. I saw that he'd struck again. Struck again. Well, I don't know if he struck again or this is because it was uh, this this tweet, right? And I'm not even going to try out of respect to pronounce this woman's name. Uh, her, my name is, and I, I don't want to say it. It says, she's a Tanzanian fashion designer based in Houston, Texas. This is a tweet I'm reading. I lost my bag in 2018. So when you say again, William, that implies new. Yeah. This shows how long this has been going on for. In DCA, right, one of the DC airports, recently I heard the news on Fox News about Sam Brinton, luggage issue. Surprisingly, I found his image wore, his images wore my custom-made outfits, outfits, which was in the lost bag on 2018. So, I mean, there's an added level of irony here, right? Based on the grammar, we can tell this is actually someone who's an immigrant, right? Who's come here to make her life better. And it's been made worse. I mean, do you want to talk about an intersection, William, of of all the social justice issues when we have someone who identifies cultural as appropriation. a woman? This may be our first confirmed case of cultural appropriation, Justin. <laughs> by white supremacy yeah <laughs> is this not a white guy stealing an immigrant minority's property and using it to appropriate her culture yes i mean doing what he probably would complain about and, and here's the sort of amazing thing about this that i want to sort of uh herald here is so often we talk about and i talk about the negatives of the internet and social media culture but Without the internet exposing this story and without the internet giving this woman the ability to search, she would have never been able to expose that. And I think it's wonderful that she was able to be like, wait, let me connect the dots here. And she connected the dots. And I think, I think this is indisputable proof. What do you think? You know, I was, I was, the only thing I can say is I'm going to be a, a internet sleuth here, investigator. Um, 
it is definitely the same pattern of cloth, but it appears that he put it on backwards. <laughs> because because if you see the design, like look at the design by the neck, it's slightly different. I think maybe he put the dress on backwards. I mean, at, at risk of saying something offensive, uh, I mean, isn't that one of the dangers of cultural appropriation? Yeah, right? Is yeah. when you appropriate things backwards. Yeah. And, and... Isn't that kind of a problem when a man tr- pretends to be a woman? Yeah. Like he's putting on women's clothes wrong? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, it could be maybe it just laid different on him, but it looks like it appeared p- probably because he doesn't have breasts, he put it on a different way. But, yeah. How, how dare we? How dare we tell a man how to wear a woman's clothing? How we dare we tell a woman how, d- how to wear a woman's clothing? How dare you? How dare you? Rah, 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 rah. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, like, how do William... How do more layers of absurdity keep being added to stories? Like this is this is this is the have gift we ever that had a st- just keeps giving, man. Like yeah. if you remember, dude, I think I I I called this a while back. I said that hey, if he's been stealing, you know, if he's stealing women's clothes, like this is way more serious than people realize, right? Oh yeah, and and we're I I am afraid of what's gonna the next step, right? The next step is gonna be abuse, right? Like th- th- this is going to come out at some point. That is the next logical step for for an individual that's has this kind of mental problem. Right. Where I would say it's not even he's going to do it. He already has done it and it will yeah. be exposed at some point. It's sort of like the Harvey Weinstein story. Right. And I don't want to say this guy is equivalent morally to Harvey Weinstein. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is. Recently, I saw an article where he even tried his tactics against Paris Hilton, and I read it, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's not a surprise, right? And it's the same thing here. When more comes out about this person, it will not be a surprise. Yet, here's the thing that's disturbing, William. Yet, no one in this person's circle did anything to help this person. Isn't that the real tragedy here? Yeah. Well, I I don't know that someone that is this deranged has any real friends, right? Like that like you you tend to burn relationships pretty quickly if you're if you're this narcissistic, this, you know, this far in the cluster B spectrum. Yeah, and I guess someone who's that narcissistic, it's hard to want to help them rather than just watch them yeah, sort yeah. of. Yeah, you don't help someone like that, burn. you get used by a person like that. Right. To to meet whatever purposes they they def- they define. Yeah, but they were able to use people well enough to get all the way to working in the Biden administration. That's true. That's true. And it's... I said they there. I don't even know if they's the proper pronoun. So <laughs> I don't know either. Criminal. Trying to... Criminal is the proper, trying... yeah. proper pronoun. <laughs> yeah, criminal. Okay. Well, moving on in the Twitterverse to someone who may or may not be a criminal based on uh, what you think here and your perception. And I think that's sort of the point. Scott Adams. And I say Scott Adams because prior to recording this morning, I had Midsider Lucid Fitzpatrick send me some stuff about uh, the Dilbert creator and online political commentator, where apparently he is being quote-unquote canceled because he has made quote-unquote racist statements. Now, I don't know enough about it. I was watching a little bit of the of the video pre-show. But it's it's very cl- unclear what's going on. And I think it's unclear what's going on purposefully. And that's sort of the angle I want to take on this. But 
My understanding is as follows from the brief snippet of the video I saw, and this was Scott Adams' direct video, Coffee Talk. He had it posted on YouTube. There was a, a poll by Rasmussen asking, or Ramison, however you say that name. Is that, how do you say that, William? Do you know? I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Rasmussen? Something like that. I don't know. It, that's, it's, that Rasmussen sounds too Russian for me. It sounds like Rasputin. 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 <laughs> so Rasputin ran a poll from the grave where he asked people whether the phrase it's okay to be white is okay and apparently something like 26 percent of black respondents said no and then another about 21 percent said they were unsure so scott adams said 41 percent of black people think that it's not okay to be white and then he called black people a hate group and he said that he had been a member of a hate group unintentionally because he you know agreed with these people right and he has even later since tweeted a a video about he says you know i was called a racist for agreeing with these people and it was a video where they asked a bunch of black people what are white people uh supreme about or you know what are white people really good at and they're like basically saying, you know, stealing from people, culturally appropriating, being oppressive. These are all real words the video used. And when I make the point of saying I want to take the angle that it's unclear what's really going on, it's because I think Scott Adams is a professional troll. And I don't mean that in like he's a troll in the sense of like he just tries to make people angry. I mean, I think he takes an angle where he's super provo provocative in order to make a point. And the angle he seems to be taking now is, right, where he feigns because he is in San Francisco, although at the same time, I think when he says this, he's making a point about people in San Francisco, he feigns being a leftist. He feigns being far left to be able to point out the absurdity of what they're saying. I mean, that video, right, where, oh, what are white people really good at? Oh, well, white people are really good at stealing from other people. I mean, isn't that every group of people in the history of the world? I mean, can't yeah. you say that about yeah. anyone? And, you know, these statements that are made, like, when you say, what are white people really good at? Stealing from people. And then, if you're black, or you're any race, right? If I'm a white person and I say, well, what is William really good at? And I say, stealing. Doesn't that imply, William, that I don't steal? And I think it's bad that you steal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if I'm black and I say that, if I'm any race and I say that, you know, if I'm Polish and I say, oh, Germans are really good at stealing, that implies that I think Polish people don't steal. Right. Which would be wrong. Right. That's that's collectivism. You can be positively collective. Collectivist. Now, what if you said Germans are very good at gas chambers? Well, I mean... That wouldn't be wrong, right? No, it would be wrong, right? It so. would be wrong because not all Germans are, right? That's, yeah, exactly. a, that's an unfair collectivist stereotype. <laughs> we can't continually punish modern Germans for what was done in World War II, right? Now, if they agree with that, that's a different story, but we have to judge each individual case. Exactly. And that's the point. And I have to think that deep down, that's what Scott Adams is getting at. But it's really hard to tell, William, in general, what Scott Adams is going for. To the point that Midsider Lucid Fitzpatrick actually thinks he's trying to be canceled because what's happened is Dilbert has been removed from a whole bunch of newspapers and now Scott Adams has started uh, marketing his locals page more, pushing his locals page more, almost as if he wants to be 
more in control of Dilbert and not have the editorial oversight of these newspapers. So what, what do you think of all this? What do you think of Scott Adams in general? Any thoughts on the particular controversy? Yeah, I think Scott Adams values provoking response in his audience over clear communication. And that's what's always bothered me about him. I feel like you have to be constantly paying attention to what he's saying in order to understand what he's saying. And I ain't got time for that. I don't know. Maybe other yeah, listeners I'm, have a have a more simpler explanation. But I every time I look at anything that he tweets or sends out, I have to like I see what I, I. It's clear to me what he's trying to trigger in the particular people the hornet's nest he's poking at. But then the why is sometimes just a big question mark. Yeah, it's sort of like following a specific show or movie culture that has super in-depth mythology yeah in order to understand all of it you have to watch all of it and analyze the mythology and it's like you said i don't have time for that yeah and it's i think it's a little bit i it, i contrast that with like you know people often criticize tim pool for being like a, a milk toast fence sitter right and uh i think this is this achieves the same result you know scott adams and tim pool have the same issue which is you never quite know where they're where their particular stands are on on controversial issues, right? Or he will drift and change his mind, which is fine. Like I don't I don't mind people who change their mind, but then the way he continually pokes at uh like whichever side of the issue he's sitting on, he just pokes at the other side. Is is this really convincing anyone or communicating anything to anyone? I don't know. Yeah, it seems to be more entertainment-based than anything. And maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe when we're talking about grifters, right, that's a the common term people like to throw around, maybe he's the ultimate grifter. Maybe he just does it all for attention and to entertain people, and it's just all to make a buck, and he has no real point. I mean, I do remember once he said that basically reality is subjective, and essentially he said it was socially constructed. So that sort of has to be the only end. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. You, you, there's no there's no value in building anything if that's true. So you can imagine that tension that that leaves uh, in his psyche. So moving from someone inconsistent to someone consistent yet immoral, I want to talk a little bit about James Cameron. In the wake of Avatar two, a an article came out in Time. Uh, I was going to say magazine, but I can you even say magazine anymore when it's all on the internet? Uh, it's called James Cameron is reconsidering a few things. And the subheadline is, but he still wants those Avatar skeptics to know they were wrong. And I want to talk about this sort of from two different angles. One, uh, sort of his approach to art and his approach to ideas in it and sort of something that I see as very insidious. And then two, um, how incredibly insidious this man actually is. And is it even moral to support his films at all? all right. So I want to read uh, a couple excerpts here. First one, James Cameron wanted a vegan set on avatar, the way of water. Anything less would be hypocritical. The sci-fi epic, which reportedly cost more than 350 million centers on aliens fending off invading humans who have depleted earth's resources. We couldn't lecture oil companies and turn around and eat hamburgers, he says. <laughs> so here's the first thing, William. First, it is laughable. Did they, did they eat vegans? Did they really serve up raw vegan? 
vegans? Were they barbecued? Funny. Uh, but the point I wanted to make is, can we at least say at least he's not a hypocrite intentionally? Like, we can argue that the ideology itself is hypocritical, but <laughs> he's trying to be consistent, is he not? No fossil fuels were used in the making of this vegan food. Yes. No fossil no, fuels no, no were used in the making. No plastics in any of the cameras or the Right. Or the, That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the catering is vegan, but the... Uh, the, the film set itself is not right. Yeah, it was Somebody pointed vegan, that out when I was vegan. Artisanal uh, graphics cards were used to uh, render all those uh, all those uh, animations. Funny enough, when I worked on Atlas Shrug Part Two, that that was pointed out to me by the uh, the craft services people, the catering people, where they said that, where they were very aware of the amount of waste on a film set. That all these people preach all this environmentalism, but the amount of waste in the industry they're in yeah. is, is tremendous, which. I guess maybe craft services is uniquely able to see that because the amount of you've been on sets, right, William? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the amount of like food that is brought in every day, and like people need different snacks every day and different food for their like two to three meals every day. It's pretty grotesque if you think about it. Yeah. Okay, continuing with this article. Cameron may have also intended to make a larger point to Hollywood. When the director brought the idea for the first avatar to 20th Century Fox, he says executives asked him to strip the script of tree-hugging because they thought it wouldn't sell tickets. He refused. Avatar went on to achieve massive success, grossing nearly $3 billion globally. Since then, other movies like Avengers Infinity War have tackled climate change. So I'm going to stop there because I want to continue with that because it gets into a whole thing about Thanos. But I want to talk a little bit about this part I just read, William. First of all, it explains something to me that I've always kind of been curious about. You know, Disney leans into the environmentalist angle a little bit more because they have Animal Kingdom where that whole park's sort of an environmentalist park to the point that Daniel T. Richards will never even go to Animal Kingdom for that. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as extreme as Daniel sees it as. But with Avatar in general, now I haven't seen the second one, but I think it sort of speaks to my point that I have no idea besides this opening paragraph where they're fighting off humans that have depleted Earth's resources. That's the first I found out about the ideological bent to Avatar 2. But even the first one, like... William, nobody talks about the ideological bent of Avatar. Don't they only talk about the graphics and like the way the Navi look? Isn't the entire focus of focus of Avatar the production and the aesthetic and the common man, the common person, the average person in the world doesn't give a shit about the ideas? Or am I wrong? I think I think you're right. If you took the all the if you just had that it, instead of you know the movie tries to be a Humans are bad. This is a fight against humanity, right? But if you took all of that frame, like treat, treated that as a frame story and took out all of those scenes and just had this be a, like just that one guy be the villain, right? And just like it'd be about him and not about humanity. I think the movie would have been received exactly the same. Correct. Maybe, because, because it's not, it's not essential to the rest of what people get out of that movie, the enjoyment that they right. do get out of that movie. But also, Justin, What's the rewatchability of the first Avatar? 
I don't know anyone who's I don't know anyone in the younger generation that saw the first Avatar, right? It's it's not like a movie I, I'm like oh I want to sit down and watch it with my nephew, right? I, I mean I I have that sense too, but I don't want to make these blanket statements because it continues to make a shitload of money as a franchise. People continue to line up at Disney to three hours to go on the ride of the passage ride. The new movie made a bunch of money. So there's gotta be people rewatching the movies. I, I think it's, I think it's the beauty. I think it's the artistic beauty. I think when we talk about all the time, Justin, you and I talk about this all the time, that film is such a visual medium and there's no denying that Cameron has an artistic way of, of, of creating these visual vistas and medium and the fact that he did it all almost all uh uh in computer graphics back then for the first avatar that was groundbreaking right and and it was amazing the the visual feat was amazing right so i do think that's why i'm not comfortable saying it doesn't have rewatchability i think for you and i it doesn't because we don't have a mind-body dichotomy and i'm not saying for everybody who rewatches it i'm not saying they all have a mind-body dichotomy but i'm saying generally people don't look at art the same way we do right. whereas for you and me like all i can watch almost any movie once right there's, there's very few movies that i've ever watched that i've been like i can't finish this shit show right because i just want to see what it's about and i want to engage with it but to be rewatchable there has to be an integration of style and substance for us which avatar doesn't have like the first time watching avatar wasn't painful right it was kind of fucking annoying when they were like uh, unobtainium like that was intelligent but like i've seen other movies that have preened and preached in that same way but for me like i have no curiosity to rewatch it at all like you're saying but for the person who doesn't have the same approach we do i do think there's rewatchability there but i also think william that that's why this little factoid is really interesting because I do think that Disney and Fox and whoever else it was involved in, it says 20th Century Fox here, but now we know Disney owned 20th Century Fox. I do think they made a point to de-emphasize the tree-hugging in the marketing and branding of the franchise. Because really, if you were to properly brand it, wouldn't you brand it as a tree-hugging franchise, an anti-human franchise? Wouldn't Unobtainium? Like, think about, like unobtainium in the same sense as dilithium crystals in star trek right how important is the idea of going warp speed and antimatter and matter to star trek like that's one and the same you can't think of the without it like lightsabers right yeah but with avatar you don't think of the mineral you don't think of the technology all you think about you don't even really think about the fact that what the name means how many people actually process that avatar is about this guy who is using a fabricated creature to live in, to live among natural creatures. I mean, isn't that in itself cultural appropriation? People don't think about it. It's literally just branded as, here's a beautiful, idyllic, natural planet with this sort of unique, beautiful blue race. Isn't that entirely how it's been branded? Yeah, it's the noble savage sort of right put 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 to visual right and i think that that's intentional by fox and disney i think that intentionally they're doing that because they're just trying to make money off of james cameron but i also think that this then becomes an interesting case study between the um i can't think of the word it's it's somebody who 
They're not a protester. They're a crusader. What's the word? We'll go with crusader. The crusading artist, right, versus the corporation who wants to take advantage of that person in order to make money off of them. And that's because they knew, Cameron knew he had Fox over the barrel. He knows he has Disney over the barrel because the amount of money he can print for them. So he can make it so his ideas are in there no matter what. And then when we look at what his ideas actually are, to continue this paragraph. In fact, okay, so I'm going to continue back to the Avatar or the Avengers one. Since then, other movies like Avengers Infinity War have tackled climate change. Still, that Marvel blockbuster doesn't exactly endorse green activism. In fact, it's the villain who becomes so concerned with waning resources that he uses magic to snap his fingers and to demolish Half of all life in the universe. Here's the the quote. I can relate to Thanos, Cameron says. I thought he had a pretty viable answer. The problem is nobody is going to put up their hands to volunteer to be the half that has to go. I don't understand, William. Aren't we living in an age that complains about Nazis and Hitler all the time? Yeah. Is this not somebody who is revered in our culture and... Isn't he somebody in the 1%? And isn't he an example of what they would call white privilege or what would be called white privilege? Literally advocating genocide and that the problem with genocide is just that nobody would willingly be participate in genocide. Am I wrong in reading that quote? It's, it's megalomaniacal, right? It's like, I want, it's, it's the, it's this, it's saying, Hey, half, you know, half of everyone must die. And so like, you know, it's not going to be me, obviously, because I'm one of the few that uh, recognize this fact. So, yeah, it's it's very it's very gross. It's very anti-human. Well, right, and that was actually one of the things that uh, sort of Marvel and Disney didn't take advantage of narratively. That would have been super compelling. Wouldn't it have been compelling if, when Thanos snapped, he himself was part of the half that was eliminated? Yeah, and then in part two, in order to reverse the snap they would have to Bring go to wherever yeah. right go to wherever Thanos was so he could have him convince himself to not do it because he realized how narcissistic he was being when he himself was punished like wouldn't that have been a much more compelling story yeah it would have been it, you know it, it's something it, it gets to something that uh, i've been thinking about I, I, not not uh not got a full answer on but i don't think disney is capable of having villains anymore I just don't think they can do it anymore. I don't think they can write a villain, a compelling villain. We won't have any more Jafars. We won't have any more Ursulas. Like, they can't do it anymore because of... Just like, for the same reason they can't write good heroes anymore. They they can't connect... They can't integrate the theme and the characters and choice. They just can't do that anymore. Their, their values permit them... Or, or, or uh, uh, prevent them from doing that. Well, I mean, this is where it's difficult when we're saying Disney, right? And you're saying their values. I, I think this article reveals the dangers and how deep the pragmatism goes in these corporations. I mean, how how much is Disney actually a social justice company, and how much is? And this is all you know. This is the question of always the true believer question, right? I do believe there are true true believers in there, like Cameron, and you know, like. Uh, 
who's the guy now? It's not Eisner who came back. Who came back? Iger. Sorry, Iger. Iger, Eisner. They sound very similar, right? Iger, who came back, who I believe is probably a true believer. But how many other people within are just pragmatists saying, well, this Mm. is where the wind is blowing and this is how we make the money, which part of the reason then that they can't write good villains is the villains are the ones who are in charge. Yeah. I, I, how, how do I not see James Cameron as a villain here? How do I not see him as someone with great power who uses it very poorly? I mean, isn't that what Stan Lee and Steve Ditko meant when they said with great power comes great responsibility? Isn't James Cameron intentionally using his great responsibility poorly? Isn't that the definition of a villain? Yeah. Yeah. When, when he would rather see when, when he sees other people as a threat like all other people just by default by them being alive as a threat that's there's nothing there's there's nothing more damaging and more warping to your worldview than that premise right and yet ironically the pragmatism in these corporations is actually you know helping us at this point but this is the point we always make about sort of conservative slow things down whereas you know, leftists speed things up, right? Isn't yeah, the pragmatism yeah. just an example of conservatives slowing things down? And that's the reason people hated Chapek. I don't know if he was conservative, conservative, but he definitely was from the Midwest, like you are, right? He was from the Michigan area. Yeah. And he went in there and he just tried to slow it all down because he was like, hey, look at how these people getting in and infiltrating are destroying things. Yeah, I think he was treating a symptom and not the cause. Well, right. And that's what we're talking about here. The cause is they're doing business with these kind of people. You you have to ultimately, and this is the point that Ayn Rand made, and this is a point that so many people miss about capitalism, right? They think capitalism means making as much money as possible because they misinterpret the word capitalism, right? No, capitalism is an economic system based on capital, where you trade based on the capital you have. It's not capitalism because you're trying to amass as much capital as possible, what you're trying to maximize is your values using the capital you have and the capital you're able to gain based on that. But the problem with any of these companies, and if you remember, William, we talked about this before years ago, especially with the Boy Scouts, right, where the discussion was, well, the Boy Scouts realized they were losing 50% of the market share by being the Boy Scouts and not allowing girls in it. So they started to consider letting girls in. No, that's not capitalism. That's pure pragmatism where you're looking at money being the end goal, where the end goal is really the maximization and the realization of your values. And mm-hmm. when you move beyond that, you are only leading to your own destruction eventually, and the quality gets worse. Yeah, and we have we, seen the quality get worse it, with Disney. We always say measure what matters. Uh, that's one of the things I teach a lot of my new, new folks uh, as they transition to management, measure what matters. And if you're measuring your revenue as boy scouts versus are we creating you know are are we are we making men of good character on the other end of the program you're you're measuring the wrong thing and you're going to get you're going to get the wrong results well i'm going to even say this as a coach william exactly what you just said i'm going to say as a coach you would think as a coach i would be measuring wins as what matters no okay especially in high school especially in college. Maybe it's different as a professional athlete, but I would even say then it's not about the wins that matter, right? You want to win the Super Bowl, but it's not about winning the Super Bowl, right? What it's about is bettering your life. The way I measure success is that I've improved the lives of my girls, that I've given them life skills, that they have given themselves, they have learned. I have guided them to learn the life skills they need to survive. 
the life skills they need to thrive. And the winning, and I said this to one of my girls a couple weeks ago, she got fourth in the district and she was devastated. And I talked to her and I said, look, we only want to win so we can keep wrestling because we like to wrestle. I don't care about the losses. I literally don't. I care about if you don't try and you lose. I care about if you don't give your best effort. But if you make a mistake or you have a bad day, I don't care. We only want to win to keep wrestling. We don't measure it by the winning. We, we enjoy the winning and we would prefer it. But I measure the success by how much have you improved? How much have you grown? And how much has that made your life better? Because the, the pure pragmatism is doing whatever it takes to win. And if you're really embracing that, that's when people get into the cheating and being dirty and cutting corners. And that isn't maximizing your values because you're, you're cheating yourself, ultimately. So yeah, it's the same thing. And that's exactly what's going on here when people like Cameron are employed. It's not about the values. It's not about the values that, and I, I hate people who say this all the time, but I'm going to say it now. Disney doing this is not about the values that Walt Disney created. And again, we'd have to ask Walt Disney what he actually thought, and maybe he would like the values. I don't know. I'm not going to say that. But it has to be in line with the values of the company, not just making money, not just winning matches. Does that make sense, William? Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Okay, let's move on to uh, talking about an, a couple other things that are related to this story. One is about education, and one is about how this affects um, a culture overall, right? The first thing I want to talk about is, I, William, did you see this video of Matanzas High School independently, or did you first see it from me? I, I saw it independently. Uh, it showed up on my feed, and then uh, I think right after that, you had posted it to the thread. Well, let, let me just tell you something. This is how crazy this is for me. Matanzas High School has been the number one team in girls wrestling all season. We've wrestled against them multiple times, right? And I'm not saying this to say there's any sort of connection between the two. I'm saying this because this is how close this sort of story is to me and my life experience and the way my life is lived nowadays. And and that makes it sort of hit home more for me because I didn't see it through Florida channels. I just logged into Twitter, right? It wasn't like I heard it. I was the one telling people in Florida at my school, right? With the wrestling program. Uh, it wasn't like it was told to me by the school district. It wasn't like it was told to me by the local news, by local channels, right? This was literally, I logged into Twitter and saw it. And this story is a, uh, a teaching assistant had taken a student's Nintendo switch the, the switch had been taken in class. Okay? That means the student was trying to play Nintendo Switch in class. Which, I don't know, William, tell me how much I've talked about this on air or not. Have I talked about how hard it is to try and get students to pay attention in class? Yeah. A lot of distractions. Yeah, because they all, look, it, it, it even just came up in, in wrestling practice earlier today, right? We had another team come in from class 1A to drill with the boys because the boys are in class 3A. And the coach was pointing out from 1A, he said, back in the day, we never used to practice with music on. Never. Never, ever. When I was in high school, we didn't practice with music on. But now, you cannot practice without music on. Even the coaches in their 20s want to put music on to practice because they can't practice without it. 
People need to be constantly stimulated. And it's the same thing in the classroom. They get mad when you won't let them have their headphones in or you want them to put their phones away. And this is an example of it. You know, I don't always like to go super in depth into what it's like teaching because, you know, I don't know if somebody's going to listen to this and use it against me. But in this case, I'm okay with talking about this. The fact that this student, after having his Nintendo Switch taken away for having it in class and playing it in class, chased the teaching assistant out into the hallway. So this video, because I want to be clear, there are no cameras in the classroom, William. They're only in the halls. This video shows this six foot tall student knocking out this woman. So he runs up to her and he pushes her over to the point that she's knocked out. Now, okay, maybe if he was angry and he did that, it'd be, I don't want to say excusable, but like you could understand how someone can get so mad, especially as a child. And they do that. And then they're like, Oh crap. Right. And they realize what happened. But here's what's disturbing about this. William. In the video, he then continues to attack her while she's on the ground, kicking her and punching her until other adults come over and pull him off. Now, I don't want to say this is a common experience. I don't want to say this is happening every day, William, but it's not surprising to me. When I saw this video, I wasn't surprised by it. Was I disgusted? Yes. Was I surprised? No. And I think that says something when we talk about the way school systems are nowadays and the way kids are nowadays and the way people are nowadays, that something like this would ever happen. Yeah, Justin, it's, it, it is, it was very disturbing video. And, you know, I had a, I have a friend who I think he's a principal now, but he was in the Baltimore uh, County school systems dealing with the special needs students and the kinds of training he had to do and the emotional and physical abuse he would have to endure to teach some of the special needs folks. These are, these are not special needs as in physical handicap. These are emotional handicapped students for lack of a better term. Um, the stories he would tell were disturbing and it, it's, you know, you say it doesn't happen every day. I think, I think it happens more frequently uh, than you think, especially in certain crowds. And the fact that we have more of, of students, who are suffering these sort of issues is uh, is a tragedy. Well, I, I want to be clear when I say I don't think the physical abuse happens every day. Is that clear? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because what I want to say is I do think psychological abuse happens every day. And I think if that you are not self-actualized, and I don't think I think if you're not healthy, it can take a toll on you. Yeah. I say that because it does take a toll on me, right? It's very difficult to want to continue to go to the classroom when there are some kids who are just not interested in learning and they will lie to your face and say they've done their work when they haven't, or you give them time to do their work and they don't do it. And you utilize the tactics that the school district wants you to, to engage them. And then you utilize, you know, tactics of, engagement from a marketing perspective and it doesn't engage them you know you use all of your knowledge and all of your ability and still they're not interested in being engaged and then they turn around and blame you for it where not yeah. only does the, the students blame you but the school district blames you as well right it's your responsibility to engage them and if they're failing you have to call their parents and explain what your plan is to engage them 
Well, why isn't the plan to hold them responsible for not doing work? Why isn't that the plan? Why do I have to come up with a plan? Right. And, you know, over and over again, that's the messaging is it's your responsibility as the adult and as the teacher. And I do agree that as a role, that is your job as a, as a teacher, right? Your job as a teacher is to engage your students and to teach them. I don't think that 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 can be argued, but if you're a movie director and your job is to engage the audience and entertain them and the audience is just an audience you can't reach, do we then tell the, the uh, author it's their fault? Do we then tell the director it's their fault? I mean, unfortunately we do, William. This is yeah. part of the subjectivism and relativism of our culture. Haven't we talked about on this show before? And this is something, if everyone remembers Midsider Elliot, that he really latched onto. Do you remember when I brought up the concept, William, of tyranny of the audience? Yeah. Isn't this video of this teacher's assistant being attacked at Matanzas, isn't that an example of tyranny of the audience to the extreme? Yeah. Yeah. To the physical extreme, for sure. Well, that's what it all... Tell me if I'm wrong. All right. Tell me if I'm absolutely batshit crazy right now, William. Isn't the entire point of building civilization? Isn't the entire point of engaging with our rational function to move beyond the purely physical realm of might makes right? Isn't that why we created everything? Yeah. And so when the good, I I was going to say, and this, this shows that the, the, at least for the student, he, he rejects that, you know? Right. And that's what I was going to say. And isn't this showing that the direction we're headed and everything we're embracing is undoing all of that? Yeah, it's a it's a concretization of a lot of things we've been talking about. Unfortunately, it's grotesque, but that's that's what's going on. Right. And this is the statement I'm going to make, which perhaps if someone listens to this and brings this, I could get myself in trouble. But I don't think this is a controversial statement and I don't think it's deserving of getting in trouble. So I'm willing to say it. This video is why I say that I am in the front lines of the culture every day of our lives. And I don't say that every day of my life. And I don't say that in the sense of I'm a leftist crusader or I don't say that in the sense of I'm a right wing crusader. Right. I very intentionally tell my students it's not my job to teach you uh, what to think. It's to teach you how to think. Come to your own decision. And if you want to later have a discussion with me outside of class or you want to have a discussion with me after you graduate about what I think, then I'm more than willing to engage you in that discussion. But in the classroom, right, I'm not advocating. I will make the arguments for both sides and I will tell you what the optimal arguments for both sides for all sides is. And then we can go from there as which one you agree with and how you want to approach it. Uh, but I mean, I'm in the cultural front line because there is a battle between uh, do we want to continue down the path of becoming uncivilized, of moving away from our rational functions and moving away from a society that engages based on mutual respect and trade or are we going to move towards a society that might makes right and we're going to degenerate and undo everything we've done? And because of that, there are going to be times where I'm putting myself in self in harm way, either physical or psychological in the sense that that is very much like war. You know, is it the same physical violence as war? Am, am I using the war metaphor to belittle what people who have fought in war and the PTSD they, they've suffered no, I'm not using it to belittle that, but 
explain to me how this teacher's assistant who was attacked in Matanzas, William, explain to me how what she suffered is anything different than somebody who would have suffered on the front lines of war. Is it not the same? Yeah. Can you imagine? Is she not going to? Yeah, she's not going to have psychological trauma from this? That's exactly, you were right where I was at. It's the same PTSD she's going to have, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. All over a Nintendo fucking Switch. That's what gets me the most, man. Like, if it was like she took food from you or something, it's a little bit more unsettled, but a Nintendo Switch? Really? Okay, moving on to uh, the final story, which I think is actually very, very much related to what we just talked about, William. I think it's related to James Cameron. I think it's related to Scott Adams. I think it's related to what we just talked about at Matanzas High School and what it's like teaching. Uh, You said an article called What's the Matter with Portland from the Los Angeles Times. And the, the striking thing to me about this article, William, is how it ends, right? And and I'll give you... Um, I'm trying to find it in here. Uh, you know, I'll give you a chance here to, you know, say, uh, you know, give a summary of it and everything. But to me, the fact that these final few words were published by the Los Angeles Times speaks volumes to me. Remember how we've been talking about William how the pendulum is going to start swinging back the other way on social justice and everything. And, you know, was it last year, two years ago, we started seeing the signs? Well, I think this is another major, major sign that things are going to start uh, swinging back the other way. Well, I'm scrolling. This was a very long article, but I think it's worth reading. I read the whole thing. I think it's excellent if you get a chance. So it says, the community has been desperately striving to be its best self in experiment, Map says. If it hasn't always worked, that did not mean that liberalism should be thrown out. But he issued a caveat. If we continue to fail, he said, liberalism will have been discredited. Now, I want to be clear that they're using liberalism in the modern leftist, collectivist sort, not in the classical liberal sense. This is why Daniel T. Richards doesn't like to use the word liberal to define leftists because of the way they've appropriated the word. But to me, if we continue to fail, he said liberalism will have been discredited. That is the last line of an article in the Los Angeles Times, William. Yeah. That is saying something that they're willing to publish that as like their their punctuating so what point at the end of an article. Yeah, this this article is amazing because you you know you this is this is you have to un LA Times it. But even even before you do that there's so many things in here. Like they talk about how um, despite this, like, a massively increase in homelessness and violence and the downtown being ravaged and, like, it just this complete transformation of the city, uh, Portland is not likely to turn red on any electoral map. But there are signs that the pendulum is swinging to a more moderate kind of politics. It's like, whoa! Like, just all these, like, all these, like, bombs just being thrown by the LA Times. Like, like the we know we've been talking about the stuff going on in Portland all during the pandemic and uh, during the protests and, you know, all sorts of things. Right. And, and nothing is working there and they're not, they're, they're still not out of the, they're still not understanding. It's not just that they are unsure what to do. They're, they're unsure that they would even be able to do the things that they need to do. Does that make any sense? Like they, 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 they don't have the confidence to, 
even change their mind. They, 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 the sunk cost fallacy in, uh, of ideas is really the best way to describe it. They, they, these ideas, they're going to run these all the way to the bitter end. It's, it's basically Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, because, and it's even in here, William, it's in the article, right? And this was something that I don't remember when we talked about it, but there was a Twitter thread about how when it failed in one place, they wanted to move to another place, but just with uh, better people, right? It's, it's, it's the puritanical idea of it is it's not the ideas that are the issue. It's the people, people are too corrupt to apply the ideas. And and we see it happening in Portland and in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. Yeah. I don't think there is a, I, I think that, you know, we've, we talk about sometimes, you know, the Rust Belt cities and, and Detroit and the, the huge downturn that happened in Detroit when the, when, uh, and when the automotive industry left and how like the, the problem wasn't the ideas and the, you know, the, the laws and the taxes and the, the, and the culture, meaning the choices people made, the problem was clearly the greedy corporations, right? And the fact that they left for, uh, for Mexico and Canada and everywhere else, right? And, and Tennessee. Um, you're seeing that same thing in Portland. And, and this is this, the fact that LA Times is writing this now, Justin, couldn't they just, you know, uh, uh, control F, control R and change Portland to LA. And the story would be exactly the same. Oh yeah. That was what struck me the most is it's like, that's why I left. Right. Cause it got this bad. Like this is the LA most honest okay. article that LA times has put out in a while. And it, and it's not about Portland. That's what's fascinating about this article. That's why I encourage everyone to read it. This is about LA. This is the only way that the LA times can talk up even remotely close to being objective about LA is by looking at Portland and saying, wow, what a shithole. Yeah. That's an interesting sort of psychological analysis there, William. I, th- I think, I think you're right about that. The only thing that Portland has that LA doesn't is there's much more of an Antifa presence there, which is, I think why Portland has degenerated quicker than LA. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I know I've got, uh, I've got some friends that still live in, in, in the Detroit area and things are getting a little better in Detroit in places. The, the politics though, hasn't changed. Right. And so the, you know, the, you talk about drain the swamp, the, the swamp hasn't been drained. I don't know, you know, Detroit is kind of floating along now, but I don't know that Portland can do that, can make that even that transformation to, to, you know, I don't know. Put a put a facade on the crumbling building. I don't think they can even do that. I think I think that Portland and San Francisco and L.A. those three cities we're going to look ten years from now. They're not going to be in the top cities anymore. They're that they just can't not not in their current form. Not the way they are now. Yeah, it's tough though, William. I agree with what you're saying realistically, but I think part of the issue with these cities is the people who live there. And I, I'm not talking about everyone who lives in the city. Like, I do these disclaimers because I feel like I have to, because not because I'm afraid of being canceled, but I don't want somebody to listen and miss my point because they're like, oh, he used an all-inclusive term or he used a general term. Generalizations have specific personal refutations, right? Counterexamples, but they don't excuse the general trend, right? So I feel like people who live there and William, you live there, so you can attest to this, still have the rose-colored view of the cities from what they were. I mean, the the article mentions this, right? Portland was this amazing place to go and live, supposedly. I don't know if I ever agreed with that, right? 
I I would also like to try and travel back to 1990s Los Angeles and see if it was an amazing place to live. But that's a different discussion of whether it always was. But Adam Carolla calls it aging cheerleader syndrome, right? Where people still look at the cheerleader as if she's hot, even though she's old now, right? It's the same thing with these cities. When I was living in L.A., people were talking about considering moving to Portland or wanting to visit Portland. Oh, we need to visit Portland. It's such a great place to go visit. Oh, I want to live there. Like, out of all the fucking places in just the United States, why would you want to visit Portland? I had some of right? my some of my friends I would hang out with at the gay bars in Baltimore. They would go to Portland. They talked. That was their thing. They were like, oh, we're going to go see Portland. In fact, one of my friends was thinking about moving out there, moved out there, or looked uh, stayed out there for a month, like, looking around, see if they could uh, find a job and stuff like that, and ended up coming back because uh, the... The myth wasn't as good as the the uh, the what was actually there. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, at least Seattle had good food, but it's still one of the like worst cities in the U.S. I've traveled to. Right. Like the the myth precedes things so much. And I just don't know if even in 10 years, William, to answer your point, I don't know if the myth of these cities is going to have disappeared. I mean, yeah. the myth of San yeah. Francisco, San Francisco of these hills and you know, the food and the bay, like if you think of San Francisco and you don't think of the homeless problem and the drug problem and the, the bicyclists who are super aggressive and, and entitled San Francisco sounds amazing, especially if you're in a more leftist state of mind, right? Especially if you're gay, right? Why would you not want to live there? Right? It sounds amazing. Why would you not want to visit it? But if you think about it in the way it actually is, it's sort of like Ayn Rand in New York City. Like, I get Ayn Rand romanticizing New York City. I get why she does. But I w- I've never in my life, even when I visited New York City, like, dude, the subway's awesome, right? Getting wherever you want with public transportation, right? Conceptually, that's awesome. But then think about actually being on the subway and who the fuck is on the subway with you <laughs> and the way they fucking act. I Thank you. I'll take my car. I will take my car. And okay, yeah, now I'm in a car-dependent culture in Orlando. Fine. I will take that any day of the week. You know why? Because at least my experience is safer, and at least my experience is more enjoyable. I will trade that convenience. So I get the romanticization of these cities, but I don't know if we're ever going to be able to move beyond that, which is part of the problem. This is the same thing where I was talking about with Cameron using his aesthetics and using his talent and ability to put in these backwards ideas. I've said this before. I think the left very intentionally took over Los Angeles, took over San Francisco, took over Portland because they knew that was where people wanted to live so they could force them to live how they want and force people to accept that part of the package is the quote unquote sunshine tax. Oh, you want to live here? Part of living in LA is this extreme leftist lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Do you get my what I'm saying? Yeah, I definitely get that. I think, I think when I'm uh, to get back to that point I was making, I think it integrates with that as well because the people like me, let's say, who would be able to contribute and change the culture and improve things, have ideas that could work. We, in order to survive here, have to insulate ourselves from the community, quote unquote, right? Like, and for our own psychological well-being, right? There, there, there's that. I don't go to downtown LA ever, Justin, right? Like, why would I? Like, uh, it's nice here in Dale's Lawn, and I go to the beach in Hermosa Beach. I don't go up to Venice Beach, right? 
I don't go up to Santa Monica. When they were just, just a brief aside, when they were discussing in the article about it smelling like piss, I immediately pictured in my mind downtown LA. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I had to go down there to pay my unsecured property tax for, uh, for my restaurant. I had to go down to downtown LA. I spent as little time in there as possible. Right. I, I, I parked in a parking structure, crossed the street, ran in the, into the court building, uh, avoiding the homeless people and, and, and got what I needed done and got out. And, now there's there I have friends that live up there, you know, a uh, friend of the show, uh, listener uh, Joffrey li- lives up there, but I could never live up there. I could never live up there. Yeah, it, and it goes back to what we were saying about the Matanzas High School story. It's not about necessarily the homeless problem. It's not right. about the right. the drug problem. It's not about the physical trauma that people are afraid of. It's literally about what's the psychological damage we're doing to ourselves every day by living in areas like this. And and I would say what you have to do to yourself as a rational person to protect yourself from those things in those yeah. environments, right? Yeah. The the there's a cost to the, to doing those things that you have to do to live a flourishing life with those circumstances, you know? And it's, you know, uh, I think that I think that me growing up in a more religious environment and having to have those some of those protections come naturally make it so that I'm able to do that a little better, like whether it would be L.A. or if I go to some like Bible Belt town, you know, like I, 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 I have I have some things that I do that are just kind of a little more maybe not naturally, but a little more practiced, I would say. But I, I don't think that when you do those things, that means that that there is a is, a, is an amount of. Uh, uh, there's there's very little. I have very little interest in changing the culture here in LA, right? It's a, for me. It seems like a lost cause. Yeah, well, I would agree that LA is a lost cause as part of why I left. But speaking of like you're saying background and everything, I think because I grew up in Blue State America, you know, and then I went to Ithaca, one of the three most leftist colleges. You know, that town is one of the three most leftist college towns in America. I think I'm able to identify it more. And I, th- yeah. I think it's what you're saying The I learned to insulate myself, but this is where the irony comes in. And this is the point I want to end on, especially as a teacher, right? Is it's having to make the decision of who to be compassionate about, right? We often talk about how on the show, we talk about how the people complaining about the lack of compassion are the people who have the, the least of it. And that's because they need to, William, because if you're actually compassionate in the culture they engage in every day, they would destroy themselves, right? And one of the things I pride myself on as a coach is like, I am nice to every other team and every other coach, and I try my hardest to have a good relationship with not only the other coach, but the wrestlers on other teams to the point that like, wrestlers on my own team and other teams have said something to me. They're like, why after that match, when your girl beat that girl, was that other girl so nice to you? And I was like, because I didn't want her to lose. She was just wrestling my girl. It's not like I'm cheering against her. It's just, if I have to pick someone to be loyal to, like I'm going to pick the girl I'm spending the time with all the time and helping the most. It's not that I have ill will towards that girl, but if you put me in an environment where all the other schools are trying to hurt me and are against me, well then that would lower my compassion level. And when you're in the classroom, that's what happens is you have to pick and choose when to be compassionate and when to not, which creates a less compassionate environment. 
And that's what ends up happening in all of these cities as a way to insulate yourself. As you just said, William, you can't have that compassion that comes with wanting to change things because wanting to change things is ultimately compassion for yourself and for other people because you say life should and can be better. So let's make it better. But when you give up on that, William, you're giving up on not only the compassion for other people, but most importantly, the compassion for yourself. And you're saying, this is it. This is as good as going to get. And that's perhaps the most psychologically damaging thing of all. Yep, exactly. All right. I think that's a good place to end the Life on the Midside segment. And I appreciate, William, that our discussion was more of Life on the Midside and less of the news, that we use the hot topics to talk about how do we live in this current farcical culture and how do we live with the farce rather than just talking about the news. So let's try and do that as well in The Hopeful Bromantic with... JML. Put me into syndication. Broadcast to a network station of people viewing their favorite episodes. I can't find a new pitch to throw the studio. I need a rerun. Better cast the next series of events. In the air timeline laps, my made for TV type was written off. In the last season when I wasn't focused on. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation with us during the week, you can do so by joining our Discord channel. You just go to themidside.com or themidside.com slash podcast, click on any episode link, and in there is our Discord channel. You can drop us some stories so we can have some stuff to talk about this week. Maybe tell us your opinion on what's going on with Scott Adams because... You know, it's something I still need to learn more about. Uh, and also, that's where I put the trailers. I usually put the trailers for Trailer Takedown there on Saturday. So go uh, check on those. Before we do Trailer Takedown, though, I want to do a brief movie review. And I want to do a brief movie review because I don't think this movie is really worth spending a lot of time on uh, because it wasn't very good. And if you'll notice, William, the, the shortest reviews I have are the ones that are bad, right? If the movie's average, I'll talk about it. Because, I, you know, there, if it's average, there are things that were bad and there were things that were great. And I want to talk about the things that were great and how could the things that have been average been improved to make the movie a great movie. But if something's just bad, there's not really much to talk about. It's not really that notable. And if something's good, I'll talk about it all day because I love just being like, wow, this is amazing. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Because the, the experience of enjoying something good is is just, I mean, that's what life's all about, right? So... Uh, I, my wife wanted to see the third Magic Mike movie, and I don't really have a problem, right? I mean, I like Channing Tatum, right? I don't think he's the greatest actor ever, but you know, he's a likable guy. He's enjoyable in the stuff he's in, and you know, he is a he is a dancer, and he's he's done a lot of movies with dancing in them. And the first two Magic Mites, well, they're not particularly memorable. Like my wife kept being like, "Oh yeah, that's part of the first one. That's part of the second one." I had no fucking clue. I don't remember what happened in those. But they weren't, like, terrible. It wasn't, like, awful. I mean, I will say the first one seemed to be trying to do naturalism. And it was like, what if we did a a naturalistic movie about strippers? So it kind of had that going against it. And I, I remember the second one being better. So we went to see it. And this is my one sentence review on Letterboxd for Magic Mike's Last Dance, the third movie in the trilogy. By returning to the naturalistic approach to the first film, director Steven Soderbergh drains anything energizing from the movie, which is a feat in itself considering its sexual, romantic, and political subject matter. Now, I could go on and on about how they tried to social justice up and make feminist Magic Mike, although the whole 
franchise sort of from the beginning had the bent of paying attention to the desires of a woman when being, you know, a dancer for them. Although, don't you have to pay attention to your audience? So if you're a male exotic dancer, wouldn't you need to pay attention to your audience? So it's logical. This episode, or this episode, this movie has some lines about like the the class structure and the natural oppression and blah blah blah. But the biggest issue is what I said in the description. This is a movie about sex. This is a movie about Channing Tatum's character falling in love with Selma Hayek's character and caring more about those values than caring about money. And like I said, there's the political subtext as well. So there's all of this going on, yet I nearly fell asleep. And look, have I been working wrestling tournaments? Yeah, but the wrestling tournament got out early that day. And I wasn't that tired. I felt pretty good. Pretty good going into this movie. But I was nearly falling asleep through much of the last half of the second act and the third act. Because it it just isn't that interesting. The way they did it is the most boring way possible because it's naturalistic. They weren't trying to dramatize the conflict. They were just saying this conflict exists. Here's how it exists. And it just wasn't uh, wasn't approached in an interesting way. And it was just like, oh, now now here's the show at the end that they're making the whole time, and that's the resolution of the conflict. So, nothing very interesting. I, I, it's probably the worst movie I've ever seen. Not I've ever seen. I've ever seen this year. Worst movie I've seen this year, which, you know, it's only the eighth movie I've seen. So, 1.5 stars out of five. Any comments, William? Disappointing. I mean, there's a lot, like like you said, uh, uh, Tatum has uh, got talent, and it and this obviously makes money. So they're, or they're trying to, I guess, uh, we've got the, uh, cinematic universe, the magic, Mike cinematic universe now, but, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe now we can move on and he can do bigger and better, better things. Cause I, I do want to see more, uh, you know, more of, of his talent be used in a more romantic, uh, light. I actually was thinking when I'm talking about his talent being used otherwise, how he during the movie, this is what I was thinking of. That tells you how boring the movie was. I was thinking about how he was supposed to play Gambit in the X-Men spinoff that never happened. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't. Gambit's my favorite superhero. Give me a goddamn Gambit movie. okay? Um, and then I was thinking about, like, why in all this multiverse crap that Marvel has done, like the worst possible way? Why has he, like, not popped up? Like, why would he not have been perfect in Multiverse of Madness, Doctor Strange, to have a cameo of him as Gambit? Wouldn't that have been yeah. the perfect time to do it? Yeah. But no, instead we get this terrible movie with him. So that's how boring the movie was. Okay, let's move on to trailer takedown. Like I said earlier, I post the trailers for the movies in Discord on Saturdays. That's so you can watch them when you would like. If you would like, you don't have to watch them. If you really want to just trust what we have to say about the trailers, go ahead. But if you want to, you can watch them, log into Discord, watch them before we talk about them, watch them after we talk about them, maybe you alternate. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. Trailer takedown. First trailer. Swarm looks like it's an Amazon Prime original movie. I don't know if it's going to be released in theaters or not. It's about a crazy obsessed Beyonce fan. She's a member of the Beehive. Or she no, sorry, she's a killer bee. I, I 
I'm unclear the terminology. I'm unclear if this is actual terminology. I know the killer bees are actual terminology, and I think the beehive is, or maybe they're called the bayhive. I don't know the real terminology. But they use the word swarm to describe, you know, the fans swarming when someone attacks Beyonce, right, as we see online. And this seems to take it a step further where this killer bee, this crazy obsessed fan, literally becomes a, a killer. And here's the thing about this trailer. I'm not sure about the way it's shot. It, visually, this wasn't that interesting. And that was the biggest mark against it for me. Because conceptually, I love this idea. I love this idea of having like a crazy, obsessed fan who becomes a serial killer. Like, I think that's great social commentary. And I think it's a very important theme to explore nowadays. And I think it can make for a very entertaining story from a psychological perspective of the fan. And also from a cultural perspective of how does this sort of perspective, this psychology affect everyone around them. So I'm very torn. I'm very torn because visually this doesn't look interesting, right? It doesn't look like it's very creative. On the other hand, I really like the premise and the approach here. And I think using the terminology around Beyonce makes it the perfect metaphor, especially because of how popular she is as an artist. So it's not really like you're picking on one group or anything. It's just you picked a super popular artist and that's why you would do it. So... Very hesitantly, because of the aesthetic, I have concerns, but because of the concept, I am going to very, very hesitantly hug. Netflix and hug. Yeah, just to pick on a detail here, like just the costuming just looked weird to me. Maybe I'm just not hip with the fashion uh, these days, but it, it, it muddled is the best way to describe the visuals, right? It, from the preview, in my, in my opinion. Um, yeah, the idea, the, the idea and the concept look good and that, but the, the, the costuming, the visuals, the acting is all like question marks based on this preview. Um, I don't know. This is, this is, this is an original story. And, uh, so I think that's what kind of tips it over the edge to me. I it's, it's interesting enough to give it a chance. So I think much like you, I'm going to give it a very light hug. Hug. Second trailer. Boston Strangler is a Hulu movie about the Boston Strangler case. And it is done in the least interesting way possible. So (laughs) this is done in the old fashioned, hey, here's the reporter who's going to be the hero and everyone else is corrupted, especially the police force. You know, not solving the fucking mystery of who the Boston Strangler is, right? It's not like everyone's complaining that Mindhunter was canceled and everyone everyone wants a series or show about hunting a serial killer and how that is uncovered. No, we have to make this how Kira Knightley playing a reporter is the is the hero here. That's the true story. That's the true story. The media is the is the true hero in our culture and the media will tell us that the media is the true hero. Tackle. Ugh, tackle. Yeah, I definitely got a very similar impression. I was like, wow, we're turning the Boston Strangler into fight the patriarchy? Like, okay. Like, uh, and and then we have... But uh, you could fight the patriarchy if it's about (laughs) fighting the man who's killing everyone by strangling them. You can fight the patriarchy. That's not who she's fighting. She's fighting the police and the mayor and everyone else. She's fighting everyone but the Boston Strangler. (laughs) 
who very uh, literally was a man going around strangling women, right? Yep. I think if we if we put a uh, 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 a laugh track underneath it, this movie would be more interesting, and then it might be worth watching. But until the laugh track is uh, is uh, added, I think I'm going to tackle tackle third trailer about my father stars robert de niro as an italian immigrant to america whose son is bringing him to i think it's the fourth of july i was unclear of what holiday it was but bringing him to a party a holiday party at his wife's family's house and his his italian american son is worried about being embarrassed by him uh, I super appreciate William, and I'm interested in your view as a non-Italian. Uh, I super appreciate that we're still willing to tell a story about, hey, Italians can be immigrants too, and you know maybe it shouldn't have been set in the present because Italians aren't immigrating as much. But telling the story of like, hey, other cultures and ethnicities and people from country, other countries have been immigrating here and have the same problems integrating into the system and being misunderstood, especially because of like, I don't want to say my grandfather had my, you know, my Italian grandfather had the same personality as Robert De Niro in this because he didn't, but like, they're starting to look kind of similar, not necessarily in like the facial structure, but you know how like people from similar backgrounds will, as they get older, start to like their bodies will look similar and their hair will look similar. Like, yeah, I was like, this is the first time, you know, my grandfather died in what, 2007. And this is the first time since he died that I, I saw someone and I was like, holy crap. Like that reminds me of my grandfather. And you know, some of the stuff that was said is very much like stuff growing up in Massachusetts with an Italian, you know, heritage that a lot of these things were said. So I really wanted to like the movie for these things. However, when it got to the point of like, huh, dumb immigrant cooks peacock for dinner, and it makes everyone disgusted. I, I was just out. It's just like how 80 for Brady is like, oh, it's old ladies doing a road trip movie. And every road trip movie has to have the drugs or alcohol scene. Like, it's the same thing here. Like, hitting this cliche really, really makes me not like it, despite all the things that made me want to like it. Tackle. Tackle. Yeah, I think uh, combined with the the purposely embarrassing uh scene about with the uh, jet water jet and stuff too like yeah I, like it's it's i think trying too hard on the comedy side that at least in the preview it if this had been animated it would have worked but i think in live action it doesn't work does that make sense like i yeah, don't think sort you of like do F those is gags for family what's that sort of like f is for family by bill burr you can yeah. picture this as like an episode of that yeah, yeah, but it doesn't work. I don't think it works in live action. And, and um, yeah, I, I think you could have come up with other gags that are situational gags that would, uh, and even, they could even be visual situational gags that would work and and convey the comedy and get to the point and the theme. But I think it, you completely undercut the theme when you do things like that. So, yeah, it, I don't think it works. Tackle. Tackle. Final trailer. The Machine is a comedy starring comedian Brett Kersher, I think that's how you say his name, and um, Mark Hamill that is like a sequel to his stand-up bit that apparently was very popular that I've never heard of. Apparently when this guy was young, he helped Russians rob a train, 
and then he turned it into a stand-up bit, and now this movie is a fictional version of a victim of that train robbery coming to him, and now he has to go back to Russia and fight. I don't know. This all seems very narcissistic to me, right? Like, I get stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians have a history of, like, turning their bits into movies, but why not just turn the original bit into a movie? And why not just have it star the younger actor? Like, it's the the beginning of the, the trailer is the recreation of that story, of the, the original train heist story. And, like, that could be interesting. But then it turns into this, like, weird sequel, and now it stars the actual stand-up comedian, and he just doesn't seem like he's right for the role or anything. Like, I don't want to see it. I want to watch the original thing. Although I will say... Mark Hamill is very entertaining in this. However, he only seems to be entertaining because he's voicing the thoughts that I just said, where he's just making fun of. He's playing the dad of the comedian, and he's making fun of him for being not an action star and for doing dumb things. So what's entertaining about this movie? It seems to be that it's pointing out that it's a bad movie. I don't know. This whole thing confuses me. Tackle. this i i almost can't believe this is being made like especially with mark hamill attached maybe maybe it's just mark hamill's gonna carry this movie which could could happen but just based on the preview i'm not interested in it at all it didn't make like i think one mark hamill joke made me laugh the whole preview which is good i guess but like it i don't know it just like what is the point like I guess that they make the inciting incident this uh, like oh we're gonna you're gonna help me come back to Russia and and make up for the uh, the theft that you did but like it was a lot of setup and then just very very brief about what it's gonna be about and this guy doesn't look like an action guy and it looks like he's gonna solve the issue by being a drunk idiot is that that's the that's gonna be the uh, the his superpower quote unquote nah I think I, I think I think I'll tackle. Tackle. All right, William, that brings us to the end of our trip. What did we learn? I learned that Portland is a liberal utopia. Justin, what did you learn? Uh, I learned a lot, a lot of self-reflection on the psychological impacts of fighting on the front lines culturally and how it's affecting all of us in ways we don't even realize because most of us are on the front lines without even realizing it. And if we're not, I think we're very fortunate. So just reflect on that. Are you on the front lines? And if you are, what are you doing to help yourself and protect yourself? All right. I want to thank you all for listening. Like I always say, if it wasn't for you, this would be me talking in the corner of my closet, like a crazy person still is that you just make me feel a little bit less crazy if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to midside.com slash Patreon or midside.com slash Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's, of course, how we keep the lights on. Or, you know, you can buy my book. Just go to Amazon, search for my name or search for The Cut. You can go to midside.com slash The Cut, and that'll have some direct links there. Uh, we have some merchandise to midside.com slash Merch, I think, is what it is. I don't remember anymore, but nobody's really buying from that store anyway, so maybe I need to update it, but I don't have time. So, hey, maybe somebody out there wants to design some merch. I don't know. Let me know. You're probably not listening right now because I would stop listening when we were plugging. So I'm going to stop plugging and say, if you want to grow the show, tell a friend. 
tell a female friend. That's the best way to grow the show. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin M. Lesneski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Have a magic mic. Maybe we can get James Cameron to direct the next Magic Mike and set it in the Avatar universe. I mean, that's probably the best way to improve the the Magic Mike verse. Blue alien dancing. Probably makes me more likely to see Avatar than not. (laughs) 